What's going on, everyone? It's Wednesday, February 16th, and you are listening to The Hustle Daily Show. I'm your host, Zachary Crockett, and I'm here with Rob Litterst, and we've got The Hustle's Director of Trends, Steph Smith, back in the house. What's up, guys? What's going on, Steph? What's up, Zach? On the agenda today, one of my favorite things, sleep. (laughs) We don't get enough of it, and there's a booming $12 billion industry trying to help us get more Zs. We're also going to be talking internet for low-income Americans. We're talking a pretty wild scheme in New York City to get reservations at the hottest restaurants on the cheap. Oh yeah, free resi. And lastly, cryptocurrency and how it's going to be dealt with in divorce proceedings. Uh-oh. Before we get into all that, uh, let's just give you a quick catch up on today's news. Malls are back and they're back with a vengeance. So these giant monuments to capitalism really felt the pain in 2020. A lot of malls saw sales slide by more than 50%. But Simon Property Group, that's the largest owner of malls in the U.S., they reported $4.5 billion in earnings in 2021, which exceeds even pre-pandemic levels. Another way to put it, in a recent call, the CEO of Simon Property Group told analysts that the company, quote, kicked the crap out of 2021. So uh, it sounds like someone was really excited to go back to eating Cinnabons and buying overpriced jeans at American Eagle. Big news in the chip space. Recently, the chipmaker NVIDIA failed in its bid to acquire competitor Advanced Micro Devices, Inc., or AMD for short. Well, now AMD has decided to become its own supergiant. The company just closed a $35 billion purchase of rival company Silinx. And that deal is going to boost AMD's team to 15,000 engineers and give them a $135 billion market cap. And folks, just a fun fact here, that's the biggest chip deal in history. So Frito-Lay, if you're listening, you've got some catching up to do. Lastly, Tim Hortons is the third largest coffee chain in the U.S. behind Starbucks and Dunkin'. The Canadian company's U.S. locations are mostly clustered along the U.S.-Canada border, and it's really struggled to catch on with American consumers over the years. But it has a new kind of weird strategy to try to catch up. It's going to start going after snowbirds. The company is focusing on expanding in Florida, Texas, and other areas with warmer climates that have attracted millions of Canadian retirees during the winter. So if you are in Miami, expect to see less caramel frappuccinos and more double-doubles and jelly-filled duchies, eh? All right, that's going to do it for the news today. Let's get into the meaty stuff here. Okay, so sleep experts tell us that adults should get an average of around seven hours of sleep per night. But it turns out that more than two-thirds of Americans get less than that. Um, In fact, our sleep has been declining for decades. Just a few generations ago, our ancestors were getting two hours more sleep per night than we are now. And there's really a huge industry that is burgeoning here to help us get more sleep. So, Rob, I want to turn to you here. First off, why are we getting less sleep than we used to? Yeah, so I feel like there's definitely a number of things that are contributing to this. I think... You know, in the piece we were talking about, caffeine obviously is a big one. Mm -hmm. And then I think an even bigger one is alcohol. So I own a Whoop, which I don't even know if we mentioned in this article, but it's this wristband. I wear it all the time. It tracks my sleep. It tells me how I'm actually sleeping. 
I'm going to be honest. I've had this thing for a really long time and pretty much all I've learned from it over the last year and a half is that alcohol is really bad for my sleep. So I think (laughs) alcohol is a really big part of it. I think, um, you know, if you're drinking, you're probably going to be getting worse sleep. And then I think unsurprisingly, like the devices that we're using, we're Mm -hmm. always on our phones. We're always looking at our computers. And I think that's like, that's why blue light glasses have absolutely popped off lately and have become so popular is because that's also affecting people's sleep as well. And like, just to give us an idea here in fiscal terms, is there an estimate on what the impact of lost sleep costs the U.S. economy? Yeah. So (laughs) the estimate is $400 billion per year, which is just insane. So when you look at it through that lens, the fact that it's valued at $12 billion almost seems like it's undervalued (laughs) pretty heavily, but there's a lot going on in the space. I mentioned Whoop. The biggest Whoop competitor is Aura, which is a ring that you can wear that does very similar things to Whoop. It tracks your activity, heart rate, oxygen levels. There's Cocoon, which sells wireless buds to play relaxing music that help you go to sleep. I think Bose had kind of sleep pods or something like that that does something similar. Mm -hmm. And then I think one of the biggest companies in the space is Eight Sleep, which makes a $2,000 mattress that heats and cools a person's body throughout the night and has been referred to as the Lamborghini of mattresses. And if you're on tech Twitter, you've probably heard about eight sleep ad nauseum. I know I have, but yeah, those are some of the biggest players today. Steph, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on all this because obviously like with, with any major problem and tech innovation, there's always a lot of buzz and noise to cut through. There are like very real solutions in there. But like, what are your thoughts on all the innovation we're seeing in this space right now? Yeah, so I'll start off by saying that I also love sleep and I'm surprised (laughs) that this industry isn't bigger. I mean, 12 billion is a big number, but as you said, Rob, it seems almost small, especially considering the fact that in addition to the 400 billion lost in monetary amounts each Mm -hmm. year, the CDC actually identified sleep disorders as a public health epidemic. So they've identified this as like something very serious, something that impacts a ton of people. And so we actually wrote a report about this in Trends a while ago. And in addition to all the sleep trackers and of course the mattresses and the pillows, there's a ton of interesting stuff like sleep benefits Mm -hmm. that companies are exploring, supplements. I will say though, to your question, Zach, I think we're at this inflection point where up until now, the sleep trackers will basically tell you one thing. And that one thing Mm -hmm. is you don't get good enough sleep. And so it's very reactionary. And I also, so I have an eight sleep. My partner has an aura ring. And again, all I know is that we don't get good sleep, but I don't really know too much what to do about it. And so I think in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, we're going to get a lot more proactive Mm -hmm. about the things like alcohol that do impact our sleep. And we're going to learn how to maybe win back those two hours that we've lost solutions oriented tech. Yes. Yeah. There's an awesome tweet from Andrew Huberman. I think you guys probably know of him. He had an awesome My First Million episode, but he has this tweet that's like the best nootropic, sleep, the best stress relief, sleep, the best trauma release, sleep. It goes on and on and basically talks about like the best life hack is just getting sleep. I think the companies that are in this market have the strongest value proposition that you could ever have. They have such a good story. It's like, Sleep is so important to your life. You're not getting enough of it. Mm-hmm. Here is how we can help you. And I think that's good and bad because I think a lot of these things actually do help people. But I think there are a lot of companies in these spaces that just give you kind of, I don't know, incremental value or really not a lot of value at all. But they kind of like sell you on 
their entire story. They're selling mm-hmm. the story, exactly. I find the same thing. Everyone has endless pockets. If you were to say, hey, let me give you 3% better sleep. And no one really even knows what that means at this point. But if you were to tell me that, I'd be like, <laughs> absolutely. Like, I'll pay for right. that because it's your health. Um, and your point about what Andrew Huberman said reminded me of a quote from Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep. He basically goes, amazing breakthrough. Scientists have discovered a revolutionary new treatment that makes you live longer. It enhances your memory and makes you more creative. It makes you look more attractive. It keeps you slim and lowers your food cravings. It protects you from cancer and dementia. It wards off colds and the flu. It lowers your risk of heart attacks (laughs) and stroke, not to mention diabetes. You'll feel happier, less depressed, and less anxious. And then it goes, are you interested? And of course, everyone's going to be like, hell yeah, sign me up. Like, I'll pay whatever, whatever you want. Right. And, and I think to your point, that's maybe the good and bad thing about sleep tech or sleep innovation right now is I think mm. it's selling a story that maybe isn't quite there. I read this book called Just Sleep by this guy, Nick Littlehales, who was working, I think, with Manchester United. And he had like all of these things that you can do to improve your sleep. And it is like, so like I could see eight sleep really helping with like the temperature regulation because he does talk about how you want to go from a warm temperature to a cool temperature. You want to go from light to dark, but he talks about how the most important thing is having like a really consistent wake up time to get your body into the circadian rhythm and like expose yourself to light in the morning, which Andrew Huberman talks about as well. And like try to go to bed around the same time every night. So like tech doesn't necessarily play a role in some of these really fundamental things that I think can help people out with sleep a lot. But I think some of them kind of oversell what they might actually be able to do, which is where I have a little bit of a bone to pick. But Mm -hmm. I do think some of it can be really helpful. And just having more data on it obviously is huge. Yeah, I think it's all about experimentation. And I also think that we're going to see a rise of sleep influencers the same way that there's no correct nutrition routine or no correct workout routine. (laughs) The same thing is true to some degree with sleep. And I think you're going to see people like, you know, openly experimenting and other people looking to those individuals for like guidance. Interesting. That's amazing. We're going to start seeing like top 5% of whoop sleepers or something like that. (laughs) It's like like a status symbol, right? Right. All right, so uh, let's shift gears a little bit here. The FCC uh, just came out with some data recently. They have what's called an affordable connectivity program. And the goal of this program is to make the internet more affordable for low-income Americans. Um, so, so far, 10 million households have signed up for this program. It's you know easy to forget this sometimes for, for those of us who live in you know coastal tech bubbles, but 11% of Americans still don't have internet access. That's more than 30 million people. And uh, obviously, you know, that skews rural and lower income. What could this program mean? And what are the big problems we really have to solve here with broadband connectivity and accessibility? So one of the challenges that really sticks out to me about this, Zach, is like actually building the infrastructure for internet in these rural areas. I, I read this book, Cable Cowboy, about John Malone, who ran TCI and then later Liberty Media. He's just this famous entrepreneur in the cable space. And I did not realize how hard it is to actually build out cable and internet. It's it's We talked a little bit last week about like the the ships in Tonga that are like laying cable at the bottom of the ocean. Right. And it's not very different when it comes to land. It's just you're building that cable on land, obviously. And in the middle of the country, that can be really, really hard because they're just these vast areas where they're like, you know, two houses. And mm-hmm. so that that really strikes me. I think you mentioned 10 million people signed up and there are 30 million people that could sign up but haven't yet. And I would imagine a lot of them are falling into these areas where it's just really hard to build out the infrastructure. Mm. 
And we should say, like, you know, that that 11% that doesn't have internet access, that's down from 48% in 2000. So we, we have made big strides here. Yeah, I read a stat that rural Americans are 10 times more likely to be without internet access than their urban counterparts, which isn't surprising, of course. Yeah. But just to hear that level of discrepancy between rural and urban actually surprised me. Like 10x is yeah. a pretty significant difference. Oh, yeah. Even when you're in a slightly rural area removed from kind of the epi- a nearby epicenter, there's, there's just a world of difference 10, 15 miles outside of a city center. What's really fascinating is how you can't always predict where we'll have good internet. So Hmm. I was nomadic for a long time. And when I would go to countries like Indonesia, and of course this is not true about the whole of Indonesia, but I'd be in certain places and people would be like, you're working in Indonesia? Like, do they have good internet? And I'm like, trust me, my internet is way faster than I when I was, you know, in California or in other places. And so sometimes you can't always tell, but it's also important to like consider that just mm-hmm. so many people around the world are, are not online. Like if you look at the stats, if you, of course, Africa is probably the continent other than Antarctica with, with the least internet penetration. But if you go to, there's like a page on our world and data you can see the internet penetration mm-hmm. across each country. And certain countries in Africa have less than 10%, single digits of internet penetration. So it is going to be really fascinating to see when around like, you know, a third to half of the world that isn't currently online comes online um, and what those dynamics do. Um, but mm. I know this article is, is specific to America, but those are the things that I find really fascinating too. Yeah, that's crazy. I also find myself like silently and kind of unconsciously judging places that have bad Wi-Fi. Like there are places in my life that I return to where like I know I won't have good internet. And it's like when I have a friend who doesn't have Venmo or something and we're like (laughs) paying for something. (laughs) You don't have Venmo? Oh my God, Steph. We're never, we'll never split a bill because that drives me insane. (laughs) There's a coffee shop in town that doesn't have good Venmo, good Venmo, good (laughs) Wi-Fi. And yeah, you start to remember that when you become completely tethered to your phone all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think the whole conversation becomes really interesting when you view it like, should Wi-Fi be a universal basic service? Right. And people 20 years ago would say, no, absolutely not. Like Mm -hmm. Wi-Fi is nowhere close to on the same level as water, shelter, education, et cetera. But it's I think we're actually approaching a point where you could make the argument that that it is just as or almost as essential for people to have access to. Definitely. Totally. Hey, everybody, I got a great podcast to tell you about. It's called Truth, Lies, and Work, and it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this show, you can join husband and wife team Alan, Leanne, Elliot, as they dispel myths, impart wisdom, and answer all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. They actually just did an episode with John Smith, who is the manager and agent of famous Argentinian soccer player Diego Maradona. He talks about in this episode how he was able to manage the global superstar athlete celebrity that Maradona is and was. It's a great listen. You better get out there and check it out. And you can listen to Truth, Lies, and Work wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so do you all remember that scene from American Psycho where Christian Bale is on the phone trying to book this reservation for like the hottest restaurant in town. And he's like, Dorcia. Yeah. He's like profusely sweating (laughs) and everyone's jockeying to get in the door of like this restaurant. Exactly. That is a very real thing in New York city. And (laughs) 
apparently these these finance bros figured out some kind of hack to the system. Uh, Rob, do you want to give us the download on this one? Yeah, so this is just like, this story just absolutely cracked me up because it's literally only something that would happen with finance bros like on Wall Street. But basically, it's really, really hard to get reservations at the best restaurants in New York City, which I'm sure that's the case in San Francisco. I'm sure it's the case in other cities. But what will happen is a lot of them will drop their new reservations at a certain time a few months in advance. And people know when they drop them. So they like get online and they'll fill up and be totally booked like within seconds, basically. So people that want to eat at these places just never really have a chance to. And so these three finance bros that all work together decided that they were going to try to solve this problem <laughs> for their other finance bros. And basically they built this, this chat group, this group chat in Telegram called Free Resi. And Basically, what they would do is they search Google to figure out when all of the best restaurants in New York City actually drop their new reservations, and they would set alarms on their phones so that they could make sure that they were on at that time. And then all of them would book a bunch of re- as many reservations as they could, basically from their different phones. Hmm. Um, and they created, I think, multiple Resi accounts so that they could do this. And then they would list all the reservations that they booked in this group chat, and they would just let the members of the group chat pick the reservations on a first-come, first-served basis. And they had some rules, like if you had to bail on the reservation or you canceled a certain number of times and you'd get kicked out of the group chat and all that good stuff. Well, Resi finds out about them, and like literally the first or second line of their terms of service says that Resi is for personal use. So this entire group chat was clearly in violation of their terms of service. So they scrapped this uh, group chat, like basically kicked all of them off the platform as soon as they found out about it. The funniest part about it is these are finance bros. So you would figure they had a way to monetize this and they were planning on making it a premium offering or at least like releasing a premium tier down the road, mm. but they never got the chance to because they got busted by Resi. So it was, it was a nice kind of like free for all for the time being. So it didn't last long. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. But yeah, it definitely like smells some parallels here to kind of what's happening on sites like Ticketmaster with like bots trawling for tickets, hoarding them, reselling them at markup. I get, at least in this case, I guess they were giving them out for free to their friends, but still. I guess in one sense, it was kind of like helpful to people that wouldn't have access to it, but it's obviously a very kind of select group of people that they're mm-hmm. on this group chat that were actually going to get it. So I don't know. It seemed like a lot of the restaurants didn't really care. It's like as long as people are filling our seats and filling our tables, we're happy. Mm-hmm. The funniest thing that I found, so this guy, Nick Kakonis, he is the founder of Talk, which is a competitor to Resi and OpenTable. And he said, these groups pop up every few years about as often as another generation of Goldman Sachs interns arrive in the city thinking they have a new idea, <laughs> which I thought was just like such a skewering of, of finance bro culture, which I think we can all laugh at every now and then. I'm surprised this is like not something that is more of a marketplace. Yeah. In the article, I think they mentioned that some of these restaurants do have secondary transactions where people are literally selling these reservations for $1,500. And so I'm surprised that, honestly, I'm not typically a fan of some of the Web3 use cases that people have come up with, but this seems like something that would make sense, right? Imagine a reservation is a token, or you could say like an NFT. And Hmm. the same way that artists get a percentage of when it's resold, imagine a restaurant issues a certain number of reservations. And then every time it's resold, they get like, you know, 1% Hmm. or 5%, whatever it might be. That could actually be a like revenue stream for 
these top tier restaurants. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they care about that. Maybe they, <laughs> maybe that's why mm-hmm. they haven't done it. But to me, it right. seems like a no brainer. We can't have Steph on without at least one business idea thrown out for free on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That like I I, I am so, I'm right there with you, Steph. Mm-hmm. Like most of the use cases for Web three and tokenization and like all that stuff kind of go right over my head and I'm kind of like, whatever. That actually makes a lot of sense. I, I like that idea a lot. All right. So one more thing uh, we we got to talk about here before we jump, but divorce settlements are, are obviously a hotly contested thing. Usually it centers around the most valuable asset in a relationship. And typically that's a house, you know, cars, real estate maybe, but there's a new hot asset in town. Um, of course, we're talking about cryptocurrency here. And there are a lot of complications in delegating cryptocurrency with a divorce settlement. Obviously, crypto is not quite the Wild West it once was, but there's still a lot of haziness in the space and there are a lot of ways to hide assets and shelter them. And the New York Times had a great story on some of the complications that divorce lawyers are having to face right now in splitting up cryptocurrency and divorce settlements. The best solution they currently have right now is hiring these forensic investigators, sometimes for tens of thousands of dollars to dig deep into these digital accounts and the blockchain and and these wallets and try to find these troves of Bitcoin and give a paint a fair picture of how much people have. Apparently, there are a lot of spouses hiding Bitcoin from each other and finding all kinds of nefarious ways to avoid having to split their assets with their with their partners. There's this amazing quote from the article of one of these investigators who researched this guy and they found this wallet, which contained $700,000 worth of cryptocurrency. And they went to the guy who was hiding it and they were like, hey, man, you know, what's up with this? And he was like, oh, that wallet? I didn't even think I had that. Like, (laughs) it's so funny that people uh, think that these transactions couldn't be traced, which is actually a little ironic because a lot of the things happening on a blockchain are actually more transparent, right? So so, ironic. Yeah, it's amazing. People can do the digging. Right. Right. They're like, yeah, one of the lawyers who was talking, who was uh, interviewed in the article was talking about how she'll deal with these men that are getting divorced and they'll come up with these super simple schemes to try to disguise their cryptocurrency. And they're like, Mm -hmm. you understand that like, we can see it on the blockchain. Like you can't just like sell them to your brother for a dollar and it goes away. Like like that's not how it works. It's like, wait, do you even know what you're putting your money into? It's amazing. Right. A while back, we wrote about what happens to Bitcoin holdings when you die and just the process of passing on a will with crypto. And I feel like the conversation of crypto is going to interject itself in every major life occurrence. And we're going to have to figure out new ways to deal with it, whether it's a divorce, death, it's just going to be a new, unique process that we're going to have to figure out with crypto. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us today. Thank you so much for listening to the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. I'm Zachary Crockett. Big thanks to Rob and Steph. And shout out to our producers, Darren Clark and Matt Brown. If you liked what you heard today, we've got a lot more interesting tech and business coverage over at thehustle.co. So if you haven't read our newsletter yet, give us a shot. We won't let you down. It's thehustle.co. Catch you all tomorrow.